time. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 24 is indeed one of those psalms that points in the direction, you hear it in the psalm after all, about ascension. It points us in the direction of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose gloriously to the right hand of God the Father with supreme authority as king over all creation, holy above everyone and everything as the righteous king that he is, and victorious overall as that victorious king. He is the king of glory that way. And it is our calling, and it is the calling of all, to praise him for his glorious royalty. And how believers in Christ are consoled also to know that in his kingship, we find security in his authority over everything. Uh, that we can praise Him also, that by His grace, that we can share in His righteousness. And also that we can praise Him through His victory, knowing that if this King is for us, then who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through Him and in Him. Thanks, thanks be to God that way, who gives us the victory over sin, over death, over Satan, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, as we read the psalm and we're called uh, to praise the King of glory for who he is and uh, what he's done for us, we focus a bit closer on those three attributes of the ascended Lord of Psalm 24. And we do that through Psalm 24. Praise for his supremacy, praise for his holiness, praise for his victory. We look, first of all, at the praise for supremacy overall. Praise the King of glory as the one who has all authority, as the supreme creator. We read that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then we carry on as we read from there that the world and all those who dwell therein, because he's founded it upon the seas and established it, as we read here in verse 2, upon the river. In his creative power, the, his supremacy overall reveals itself, itself. He has all authority. What he's made belongs to him as Lord and is under his authority. Both his supremacy and his holiness are really displayed in the creation or the erection of creation here. The passage speaks about the creator as one who's like a builder, uh, who has constructed the earth, as if he was constructing a house. He's founded it. He's established it. It's a holy house, if you would. In that sense, the earth is God's house. It's a temple of sorts, where he can dwell with creation as it gives him adoration and praise. It's not unusual for those of us who are believers to view creation that way, is it? We sing during the Christmas season. We sing when we sing Psalm 98. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. All of creation is designed to exalt this king of glory, the creator the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
We also sense supremacy here because verses 1 and 2 speak of how the earth was established in fullness. The fullness thereof on the seas and the waters and the rivers. And in that kind of terminology, we come to understand God's preeminence over chaos. He brings order. He brings fullness. That which was void, he makes full. He brings fullness from emptiness. He brings order from chaos. And as a creator king, then, God's glory comes to life. And unlike many in our society who would like to worship the earth or do what they do strictly for the earth or indeed view the earth as the Lord or who think what life is about is owning as much of the earth as can possibly be owned as if it all ultimately belongs to us and always will. Well, such things are not the case. The earth is not the Lord. The earth is not ultimately ours, though we are to be stewards of it, and certainly the meek will inherit the earth. We get that. We're to be stewards to the Lord. But we do that because the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to the King of glory. The earth in its fullness is not deserving of our devotion. We're not called to be servants of the things of the earth. We either serve God or mammon, God or money. But we're not called to be servants of money or the things of the earth. Because who's deserving of our devotion is the king of glory. It's the Lord who has ordained all things, created all things, and holds all things in his hands, including, and thank God for that, his people. Things are in order as God has so ordained them all. And life is in order for us when we are people that acknowledge God's supreme order for life in Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth as the ascended King of glory. And even though mankind in his sin and his sinfulness refuses to acknowledge that order and that glory, God is still the ruler yet. Though the wrong seems awful so strong, God is the ruler yet. He will see to it that his glory will be acknowledged sooner and later. Because God's glory and order prevail, and that's because all belongs to the Lord. God's creation has not been usurped despite sin and man's rebellion to worship the creator or the creation one way or another. This earth is not ruled by another. Nor was it made first for what we want it to be. It was made for what God wants it to be. It is still his earth. It is still his temple that way. It is made for his sacred plans and purposes that are fulfilled in him and his Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth as the king of glory. When we're disappointed by evil's way, we need to remember it's still God's way 
decretively, perceptively, that prevails. His promises, his plans, his goals for his glory and for his people. And we see that most clearly when we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joys set before him endured the cross and he scorned its shame and now he's in glory. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's why we don't grow weary and we don't lose heart in our walk with the Lord and why partly why it's partly why we are called to praise the king of glory because the earth is not the Lord. The earth is the Lord's. And even while people in sacrilege will not acknowledge the sacred and supreme reasons and purposes for God's world as God's temple that way, God maintains his holiness despite the sinfulness of man. Our second point here is the king of glory is, is holy over all. Our passage says, who will ascend the hill of the Lord and who will stand in his holy place? Now, standing on the hill of the Lord or his holy place is to stand in God's presence in praise, adoration, communion. God's presence with his people is, has often and and always, really, been described as having happened on a mountain or in a holy place. We think about Mount Sinai, where God was present with his people. We think about Mount Zion, where God's temple was, and, and was as was the holy place of God. It's interesting that even the scriptures would speak of the Garden of Eden that way. In, in Ezekiel 28, I just read those verses just for a moment. Um, but it's, a, it's remarkable how Eden is related to uh, uh, the mountain of God in verses 13 and 14 when there's this lament for the king of Tyre. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and he said these things uh, on behalf of the Lord. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. I placed, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Even there, Eden's, Eden's likened unto a holy mountain. And of course, we recall in the New Testament, don't we, the Sermon on the Mount and the Mount of Transfiguration or the Mount from which Jesus called to himself apostles in Mark 3.14. And of course, we recall the mountain from which Jesus declared the Great Commission in Matthew 28.16 and where many worshipped him there prior to his ascension. The problem, of course, back in Eden's day, Eden's day was that mankind, because of his sin, gave up his worthiness to stand on God's mountain. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who can stand there? Who has clean hands on the outside and a pure heart on the inside? Who loves God above all and his neighbor as himself, lifting not an idol up? 
and refusing to bear false witness. Indeed, who shall stand in the presence of the Lord in communion with Him, in praise of Him, in adoration with Him, without shame? Without shame. There's only one person who fits that bill. It's the King of glory. It's the King of glory Himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who else could ascend to that holy hill? Who else could claim all the things that this psalm describes so that he could have the privilege of an audience with the divine? Because left to ourselves, we are the kings and queens of shame, if you want to put it that way. We're the king, we're not the kings of glory or the queens of glory. We have no right in and of ourselves to ascend the holy hill of God's presence. No right at all to the privilege of worshiping and, and adoring and, and communion with God in the, in the midst of His holiness. But Jesus is the King of glory in all His holiness. He deserved that divine communion. And of course, we praise Him for that. We laud Him for that. But also through faith, that for His sake, we can have that blessed communion with Him. We can be in His presence as His righteousness becomes ours. And we know His salvation. It was Jacob that saw in essence God's... Or excuse me, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but, but I was going to mention verse 6 here in, uh, in Psalm 24, uh, the reading there. It says, Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of of the God of Jacob. There's a textual note there that that mentions that it could be, and, and all that, uh, let's see, in verse 6 there, uh, and all that fills it. Well, the essence of that sixth verse and why it is that, uh, what, what the meaning behind all of this is, Verse 6 says, in essence, this is, this is Jacob, the, the generation that seeks you, that seeks your faith. You know, Jacob's mentioned here because Jacob saw, in essence, God's face, didn't he, in Genesis 32. He wrestled with God. He, he called the place of his wrestling Penuel, which was the face of God. Because he saw God face to face and his life was preserved. Why was his life preserved? Jesus said, or Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm totally dependent on you, God. Jacob wasn't spared because he was so good. Jacob saw mercy and he received it. Yet he didn't deserve it. He deserved to have his life snuffed out. Who shall stand on the hill of the Lord? But Jacob, who was utterly dependent on God, was spared for Jesus' sake, the true Jacob who also sought his complete dependence on his Father in heaven when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Only Jesus deserves such commitment from his Father. Jesus had the clean hands. He had the pure heart. Priests might enter ceremonially into the holy place of the temple with washed hands, but it was only a pointer to the Christ whose hands were truly clean and whose heart was truly pure. 
his spirit, yes, his entirety, deserved to be in the ascended presence of God's holiness on the hill of the Lord, in the place of God's holy dwelling, in the true holy place of heaven. And so when we ask ourselves the question, who deserves to ascend to the presence of God, God's holiness says to us, apart from Christ, not you, not me, when he talks to me or he talks to you. When we're not self-deceived by our sinfulness, we have to say, I don't deserve that presence. I don't deserve that privilege. I don't deserve to have him with me always. I don't deserve to be able to worship in his presence. I don't deserve that glorious communion. Because look at my sinful shame. But we're not just to confess our sinful shame, are we? but the King of glory who does deserve that presence. And as I seek my utter dependence on God in Christ, seeking his face in utter dependence in Christ alone, then I receive blessing and righteousness and salvation that permits me into God's presence. That's why I can pray to him before the throne of grace, boldly even. It's why I praise him in, in his presence from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, and I consider it a privilege, not just a demand and not just a something I'm expected to do. It, it's, it's why I, I may know the promise of God's presence, quorum Deo, in the presence, I'm living in the presence of God in Jesus Christ and by his Holy Spirit from now to the close of the age. That holiness of Christ and how, how he also passes it along to us in grace. It's another reason why we praise the ascended King of glory. One other thing, we not only hear about the King of glory as creator king, as the holy king, but he's a victorious king. Not only the one who establishes his temple or maintains it, but enters it in victory. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, Christ's ascension was foreshadowed in the Palm Sunday event where Christ entered Jerusalem in triumph and the earthly temple. But the real victorious entry into God's heavenly temple occurred in the ascension of Christ, didn't it? By that ascension is his worthiness as the king of glory, victor over sin and death is sealed. It's confirmed. Just like the repeated call to let him in reflects. Not once, but twice. It's called for the gates to open to let him in. He's worthy of entering the heavenly temple of God's presence of which the earthly temples were just pale shadows. Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things. He's entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
the call to let him in is repeated. Because the king of glory is, is worthy to enter victoriously like no other. It's mighty in battle. And that's where we stand in history. We've got the king of glory sitting at the right hand of God on the in the heavenly hill of the Lord. Strong and mighty. He's got all authority. He's victorious over his enemies and the enemies of his people. He's not a king without a kingdom. Or a king whose victory is his alone. He shares it. He shares it with his subjects. He shares it with his own who by faith can say that when the king of glory is for them, no one and nothing can be against them because nothing can separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when we know him through faith, when we're connected to him in faith, we can say with the church of all ages, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of his Father. We have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us as his members to himself in heaven. He sends his Spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. We celebrate the ascension of Christ. But when we're believers in Christ, we also celebrate our ascension in Christ, don't we? Not a trip back to Eden, subject to shame, but a trip to the heavenly city where glory's found. In faith we can say that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, what will he do? He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This king of glory is going to come again to establish a new order, a new creation, where sin and shame will be no more. Only glory and praise to the king of glory. What a blessing for us. When we see the king of glory through the eyes of faith, we look out in the world Look into our lives. His hold of all things as the Supreme King secures us. His holiness grants us a privileged place in God's presence for worship and life. And his victory over sin makes us victors in Him. Where God is for us. And nobody and nothing can be against us. Oh yes, praise be to the ascended Lord Jesus. 
Praise be to the King of glory. Amen.